morning we're looking at Jonah chapter 1 and again uh, looking at verses 4 through verse uh, 16. And, uh, but I want to go ahead and read uh, beginning at verse 1 of uh, Jonah chapter 1 through verse 16. Let's again listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw, and, uh, threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And as we come to this passage, we ask, Father, that you would... By the power of your spirit, reveal to us the truth that is here. And we pray that you would open our hearts even now. And that as the word goes forth in the power of your spirit, that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. 
We pray all these things for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. (coughs) God is a God who pursues sinners through his abounding grace, mercy, and the administration of his justice. Jonah was a believer in the one true living God. And yet he sinned and rebelled against God by refusing to offer the hope of, of God's mercy to Nineveh. In fact, not only did he refuse, but he, he ran in the very opposite direction that God had called him to go. But, but God pursued him relentlessly to turn Jonah back that he might be reconciled to the Lord. This is what God does for believers, for His people, even for those of us here today. This is what He graciously does for us when we sin against Him. He will pursue us in order to bring us back to Him. But there's a great warning that we must remember as well. Though God is a God who abounds with grace and mercy and who will pursue us even when we don't deserve it because of our sin, well, we ought never to take the grace of God for granted. We ought never to think that we have license to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Because God is faithful and merciful, but God is also just. And He will chastise us for our sin. And as we well know, that chastisement, though done in love to restore us, that chastisement is never pleasant. And so we ought to respect the grace of God and, and seek to live our lives in conformity at all times to His Word. But God is also a God who abounds with grace and mercy not only toward toward believers who sin, but also toward unbelievers who are still held in the bondage and chains of sin. Those with no prior relationship with Him. Those who are truly without hope and without God in this world. And really, as we've noted before, this is the outworking of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see this, of course, at various times throughout Old Testament history. As outsiders like Rahab and Ruth and Naaman and others are brought into the covenant community of God's people from heathen Gentile nations. And this, of course helps us to look forward to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as uh, Jesus calls His disciples to take that gospel throughout all the world, so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue might be brought together as one people, one body, one church and bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God's plan for Nineveh, which again was a fierce enemy of Israel at the time, was another example of this unfolding gospel plan. But Jonah, because of his bigotry and hatred, Jonah refused to bring Nineveh the word of God. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, God's plan will prevail. Verse 1. 
Ultimately, it will prevail to bring salvation to the Ninevites. But even now, as, a, as kind of a prelude to the conversion of that great city, the glory of God's grace and salvation will come to these heathen Gentile sailors whom the Lord pursues and brings to Himself. Even through this storm, even through the actions and the witness of His unwilling, rebellious prophet, Jonah. Now remember, initially, Jonah's path of escape was easy. Right? There were no obstacles preventing him. Not even a faithful friend is seeking to stop him in his rebellion against God. But, but it was only a matter of time before Jonah realized that it's impossible to escape the presence of the Lord. Again, verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. Remember that this violent storm in the sea was the Lord's doing. Right? He, was, he was hurling uh, this storm like a javelin right at Jonah. In order to get Jonah's attention, to chastise him for his sin. And ultimately, uh, the intent was to bring Jonah uh, back to, uh, re- uh, to repentance and back to a right relationship with the Lord. That Jonah would humble himself be- before the Lord, uh, repent of his sin, and be restored to fellowship with his God. But as we note here, Jonah wasn't the only one on the ship. And we don't know how large of a ship it was, but it, we can imagine it had to be a, a pretty good-sized ship in order to carry a cargo safely uh, all across the, the Mediterranean Sea, for at least from one end to the other. And that was a long journey, and it wasn't, so this wasn't just a little, a little uh, rowboat. It was a, a big ship, and there may have been at least up to a, a hundred uh, crew members, maybe more. We don't really know. But there were plenty of men who were on that ship. And they all were caught in this violent storm. All their lives were in danger. Now there are two things to draw attention to in this regard. And first, it's a reminder of what we mentioned last time, that sin never uh, only affects just the person who sinned. Right? Because it brings, sin brings about destruction. And that destruction will ultimately spread to those around you. Even the sins that we do in secret will affect those around you. Either directly or through the outworking of the consequences of that sin. And so it's foolish to think that, that as long as we're not sinning, sinning against others and not harming them directly that others aren't going to be affected by our personal sin, even those sins done in secret. Because sin is never satisfied with just one victim. It will seek to consume and destroy everyone around the sinner. Jonah's secret sin of rebellion against God is, a, again, a great example of this. He was endangering the entire crew of the ship because of his sin. Well, secondly, what about those crew members? As we read this account, and some may actually object here. 
How is it fair that these crew members are in danger because of Jonah's sin? Especially since the danger is, we know, from the hand of the Lord who is chastising Jonah for this sin. Right? Why are the, the innocent mariners suffering when it's all Jonah's fault? Well, part of the answer is what we just mentioned, the very nature of sin itself and how it consumes and destroys everything within reach. But there's another reason. And it's that though these mariners appear innocent to us, we know that before a just and holy God, they're anything but innocent. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the very nature uh, uh, that they, with which they in all humanity are born with. Though the focus of this account, again, is on Jonah and his sin, we know that these sailors aren't without sin. In fact, we see in verse 5 that they are idolaters, right? They, they worship idols and false gods. They don't acknowledge the one true living God. And idolatry and false religion, according to the first uh, two commandments, are sins. They're sins before God. And as we know, the wages of sin, any sin, is death. And so who's to say that God isn't also using the opportunity to bring His judgment upon these sailors for their own sins, totally unrelated to Jonah and his sin? You see, now there's an important lesson here regarding God's purpose in allowing suffering and especially events of calamity, whether it's violent storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and the like. And sometimes when, when such events occur, foolish people might say something like, Oh, God is, is bringing judgment on such and such a place because of their, their sin and their wickedness. I remember hearing that in relation to uh, New Orleans with uh, Hurricane Katrina way back uh, in the day. People said, oh, that's such a wicked city, and God is, is judging that city. Well, indeed, this may be true. For the one who doesn't know God, the one who rejects Him, His law, and His gospel, the one who remains in bondage to sin, any time a calamity comes, well, certainly it can be viewed as God's judgment upon them, especially if the result ends in their death. Because we know the curse and just punishment for sin is death. And so there's nothing wrong with a just and holy God executing justice on the earth. Indeed, as believers in Christ, that's what we look for and expect. It's even what we pray for in, in the Lord's Prayer, that the, the God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of that is that His justice would reign here on earth, as it is done in heaven. And so we expect it. And we looked for it. We pray for it. The Psalms are filled, for God's, uh, filled with God's people seeking justice. But you see, that may only be one purpose God has in such a calamitous event. For often, such disasters will even claim the lives 
of faithful believers in Christ, right? Again, uh, New Orleans and uh, with Hurricane Katrina, there were a lot of churches that were destroyed and a lot of Christians who were also uh, caught up in, and perished in that great storm. Right? Not everyone who dies in a disaster is a hardened, rebellious sinner against God. And so what's God's purpose in this? Well, ultimately we know for the believer, it's not judgment upon them, but it actually then becomes, for the faithful believer in Christ, their gateway to the eternal reward and inheritance that Christ has secured them. At the sting of death, that is, its curse and judgment has been removed from the believer because of, of what Christ accomplished on the cross and then with his resurrection on the third day. And so when death comes to the Christian, whether naturally or through some violent event, will be acknowledged that it's the time the Lord has appointed to call them home to Himself. And so, to begin enjoying even the, etern the eternity of fullness of joy in God's glorious presence. It's a great delight. It's our eternal reward and inheritance. Again, it's what we're promised, what we look forward to. And so the Christian ought never to fear death. Because as Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5, that to be absent from the body is ultimately to be present with the Lord. And we all want to be with the Lord. And so when death comes to believers in such calamitous events, it's a reward. But there's another purpose God intends with such calamitous things. For not everyone caught in a violent storm is going to die. Whether they're believers or unbelievers, they will be some who will make it through with their lives. Now again, for the believer who endures such a thing, well this can be a wake-up call to them that they ought to be more faithful in their walk of faith. That, that they ought to turn and repent of their sin and return to the Lord as they realize how quickly death may come. And this seems to be the case here with Jonah. That's why God is sending this storm to get his attention. You're sinning. You need to turn from your sin and turn back to me. But such events for the believer can also be a great opportunity. A great opportunity for the believer to be a witness to the gospel as they seek to serve and minister to the other survivors and those who grieve. To be a comfort to others in the midst of devastation. And this is something that Jonah does not do. He has great opportunity to comfort and minister to those, these mariners, but he refuses to do it. Again, because we considered before, because of his pride. What about for the unbeliever? Well, God intends for such things to most certainly get their attention as well. If the unbeliever goes through a, a great calamity and they survive, well, what is, God, what is God's message to them? Well, He's revealing His power and His might. He's revealing His holiness and His justice. Again, that they might experience, ultimately, if it be His will and plan... His grace and mercy. He may bring these things to bring them to a point where they acknowledge their sinful condition, where they humble themselves before the Lord and call upon His name in faith. 
And so again, calamity can be used by God to not only bring judgment, but as we see here, also mercy and grace. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this purpose of God in Luke 13. There's some people who came to Jesus and they, they told him about certain Galileans who were, who were killed by Pilate and, and their blood was mixed with the sacrifice. And then uh, he mentioned also a, a tower in Jerusalem that fell on some and killed them. And they were wondering whether these victims of these calamities had greater sin than others because of the horrible way that they died. Well, Jesus' response is very powerful, and he tells them this, I tell you, no. That is, no, they didn't have greater sin. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So basically, he's saying, don't worry about the sinfulness of others, but look in your own heart. What is the condition before a just what is the condition of your heart before a just and holy God? When you see or, or hear such calamities or even uh, experience them, certainly it's a call to repent and get right with the Lord, lest something similar happens to you. And so God hurled this storm, not only not only at Jonah, but also directly at these heathen Gentiles as a revelation that there is just one true God and that they would do well to humble themselves before Him and call upon His name in faith, lest they be destroyed. And of course, these men were terrified. Right? These were... Remember, these, were ex- these mariners, they were experienced uh, sailors. And they'd likely been through many storms uh, on the sea, right? They're, they're going from, uh, you know, from uh, the region of, of Israel all the way across to Tarshish, all the way in the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, there, there's going to be times where there's long stretches where they're not seeing land. And they're just out in the sea and a storm will come up. And so they have been through storms before. But by their reaction to this storm, you can tell that they realized rather quickly that this was no ordinary storm. Especially as we're told throughout the account that this storm actually continued to intensify, getting more and more tempestuous as time went on. They knew the ship wasn't going to hold if the storm continued for very long. And so without hope and help, they did the only thing they could think of. They each cry out to their various gods and pleaded for mercy. Now we don't know uh, all the gods that they called or all the nations that they represented, but we know that many of the heathen nations of the time were, were polytheists, that is, they, they worshipped a variety of idol gods, all formed and fashioned from their own hands. And so it's not surprising that they get no response from these deaf and dumb idols. Psalmist reminds us in Psalm 115 that they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. 
nor do they mutter through their throat. The silence of these idol gods is deafening. As their idol worshippers are crying out to them desperately. And we're reminded of, of the prophets of Baal uh, during the time of Elijah, who crying out to their God and then, then for hours, and they even are, are cutting themselves and, and crying out, but there is no response from their idol gods. Just silence. Indeed, it's a reminder to us of the vanity of false religion and idols. Idols don't respond. They're deaf. They're dumb. They're unable to do anything. And indeed, as Psalm 115 goes on to point out, those who worship them become just like them. And of course, if they're not responding, well, then those who worship them are even in a more hopeless state. Especially when they're desperate and in distress. They have no hope. And if their idol gods won't save them, what could they possibly do? Well, perhaps, perhaps they can achieve salvation then by their own works. And this too they try. Right after getting no response from their gods, they, they throw, begin to throw the cargo overboard in order to lighten the load of the ship so that it might uh, be lighter and, and easier to sail and not be weighed heavily down as the, the waves are crashing down over it. But this is to no avail. The storm continues to intensify. Later in verse 13, they have one last ditch effort and they they try rowing as hard as they possibly can in order to, to turn the ship and steer it toward land. But they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. You see, the storm is working against them. And the harder they try, the harder they they work, the more the storm increases in its intensity. The more they try to work out their own way to salvation, the more difficult the storm becomes to manage. Friends, isn't that how it is with a works-based salvation? Always rowing. Always working, always doing good works or religious rituals, but it's never enough. That salvation remains elusive, and it seems actually the harder you press, the further away it gets. It's discouraging. It's vain and hopeless. And yet this is where many find themselves who rely on their own works to save them. A never-ending game of fruitless endeavor. Indeed, let this be a warning to us as well. As these sailors have come to realize that both their idol gods and their own works are useless to save them. Leaving them in a most terrifying and hopeless situation. In fact, in pursuing unbelieving sinners, the Lord often pulls out from from under them, any vain thing that they've put their hope and trust in. And here it's the idol gods and their own works. In order to bring them to such a point where they're completely and totally helpless. The point where they realize help, if there is any help, 
And salvation must come from somewhere else. Because the false religion doesn't do it. My own works don't do it. From where does salvation come? Well, this seems to be the conclusion of the captain as he goes down below and and finds Jonah fast asleep. In verse 6, he says, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your, perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So they're all crying out to their idol gods. No one's responding. Well, here's this other guy down in the ship sleeping. Well, maybe your God's going to be able to help. Because everybody else's God is worthless. And this is, again, a, kind of a shot in the dark, right? None of these other gods were, were responding and... And so this is kind of, he's kind of the captain being a, kind of somewhat of a, a practical polytheist. Right? These gods aren't working. Well, maybe your God will help. He certainly wasn't expecting any results. But certainly was a worth, a, you know, a worth a shot to make sure they cover all their bases. Now it's curious though that, that we're never told here that, that Jonah prays to God as the captain charged him. Likely because he already knew what was going on. He knew God was pursuing him because of his sin. But again, he offers no comfort to these sailors when he when he doesn't pray to the Lord. Indeed, it shows really the hardness of Jonah's heart and his continued a pride that he wouldn't intercede for these men who had nothing to do with his sin, because again, we talked about last time, that he doesn't want his sin exposed. But there's something else that comes to the fore in in these attempts by the captain and the crew members to call upon any God who, who will listen. It seems that they understand that this storm, of course being no ordinary storm, ultimately has the fury and wrath of some divine being behind it. And this is what likely leads them to the casting of lots in verse 7. Now, casting of lots at the time was a common way for for people to determine the will of the gods. It was also, though, not just restricted to the heathen, but even in Israel, they, they would cast lots in order to determine the will of the one true God when there was no prophet to give them direction. But the key difference between the heathen use and the Israel's use of of the lots is that God's people knew that the casting of the lots was not some use of random luck or chance to determine what they ought to do. Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision... It's from the Lord. Because everything, God is working out everything, every minor detail for His glorious plan and purpose. Even what seems to many people as something very random. But God has appointed every decision. And here on this storm-tossed ship, the Lord determines and identifies Jonah as the one responsible, as the lot fell on Jonah. Again, Jonah's sin is now finally brought out into the open. 
And the sailors fire a, a series of questions at Jonah in verse 8, and questions which seem to, to have really the primary focus of determining not only what he had done against his God, but just in general, what is his religion and who is this God that would have the power to stir up such a storm? Well, Jonah's confession of faith is very brief. And really, it doesn't bring any comfort at all. It only serves to terrify the men even more. In verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Even the sea that is raging. And in verse 10, we see Jonah also told them that he was a prophet of the Lord. And that he was fleeing from his presence. And in response, the men were exceedingly afraid. You see, they were afraid before because of the fierceness of the storm. But now, that fear has been magnified as they come to grips with the awesome power and might of Jonah's God. Now, here's what they gather from Jonah's witness to them. And this, Jonah says here, is actually a, a witness. It's his proclamation of the gospel, though not necessarily with great intent. They learn that the Lord God of Israel is the creator of heaven and earth, the land and the sea and all everything in them. They also learn that the Lord God of Israel is a God of great power and might who can stir up a storm the likes of which they have never seen before. And thirdly, they realize and they learn that the Lord God of Israel is not a God to be trifled with. You see, if this is what God, the Lord, does to chastise one of His own prophets who disobeys Him, well, what's He going to do with those who don't even acknowledge His existence and toward whom He finds no favor? We can imagine... That their question then, verse 10, why have you done this, was expressed with kind of a, a mixture of, of rage and, and horror and terror. Indeed, anyone running away from their God would be trouble, but, but a prophet on the run? What kind of crazy person are you? And not only that, but it's, your actions are endangering all of us. It's unthinkable. They must have been thinking, Jonah must have lost his mind. Again, though this is a witness to the Lord, Jonah just states it plainly. Right? He offers no, no warning. He offers no comfort, no solution on how to appease the Lord. He, he says nothing, of course, until they ask him. And then when they ask him, well, then he responds. But, but here he takes no initiative to offer any comfort or hope to these men, revealing once again the hardness of his heart. And of course, in the midst of all this time, this going on, well, the storm is only getting worse. And of course, their situation is only getting more desperate. And so again, they do ask Jonah in verse 11, what shall we do to you? That the sea may be calm for us. Now this is a curious question that reveals, obviously, their understanding that they knew Jonah had sinned. And they knew that justice, even justice, even death, was deserved. 
Yet when Jonah simply tells them in verse 12, oh, just pick me up and toss me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. They're reluctant to do so. They know that justice needs to be administered, but they don't want to be the ones to administer that justice. Now, we might think it's a no-brainer, right? We're all on them. I'm on the ship. Hey, yeah, get rid of the guy. Come on, let's save the rest of us. Let's toss the guy overboard. But think about this. They've seen how terrifying the wrath of Jonah's God is toward one of his own people who has sinned against him. Well, what kind of wrath would they endure if they tossed the prophet of this almighty God overboard? They don't even want to think about it. Besides, there's no, actually no even guarantee that what Jonah tells them to do is actually going to solve the problem. They have no history with, with the Lord. And what do they know of Jonah? Well, how are they to trust him? And here's one who, who claims to be a prophet of the Lord, who, who claims to fear the Lord, but what's he doing? He's, he's running away. Well, how can we even trust this guy? And anything he says, he's a hypocrite. And you'd be foolish to trust a hypocrite. But this is what Jonah tells them to do. Now, Jonah's offering up of himself may seem rather noble. Indeed, it's really the first kindness Jonah has demonstrated toward Gentiles. And he realizes that his sin has uh, endangered their lives and he doesn't want it to add bloodshed to his growing list of sins against God. Of course, he hadn't said anything before about it. When he was down below, he could have said, okay, this is, this is because of me. No, they had to drag it out of him. It was only when his sin was exposed that he maybe began to feel somewhat sorrowful and pity toward them. Again, certainly Jonah understands God's justice. Right? He knows the Lord wants him. And so a noble offering of oneself to save others, well, maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. But it seems as though Jonah's motives might have been actually much more selfish. Because later, Jonah is going to cry out to God in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please... Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Jonah considers it's far better for him to die. And the context there in chapter 4 is just waiting and witnessing the conversion of the Ninevites and God having mercy on them. He'd rather die than see that. And so hardened in his bigotry and hated, hatred, Jonah has a death wish. He knows he's deserving of death, and death is what he wants, because he knows that if he's tossed into the sea and he dies and he drowns, well, he's not going to have to go to Nineveh. This is further evident in the fact that Jonah expresses here no hope. There's no hope in the grace and mercy of God. No, okay, just, just toss me in and it's all going to be okay. Because my God is, is a God of grace and mercy and He's going to find a way to save me if He wills. 
He doesn't even say, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down my life for you because I love you and, and I care about your souls. And, and by doing so, well, I'm going to give you a picture of eternal salvation to come through God's own Son. Jonah says nothing. There's not even a confession of sin. Lord, I, I know I've sinned against you and that I'm worthy of death. Please, in these last few moments, forgive me. Forgive me for my sin, even as I commend my spirit into your hands. There's nothing. Once again, as we see Jonah as an antitype of, of Christ. Now, here it's very similar to Christ in that he offers his life for others, but, but again, his motives seem to be very different. And Jonah is without hope. Jesus, we know, had the resurrection hope. Jonah has no hope. He didn't know what God was going to provide. At least that's his perspective at this point. And so they toss him into the sea. Well, what are the heathen sailors? Well, as the storm continues to rage, they, they realize that there's, there's no other way. But before they toss him in, they humble themselves and they pray to Jonah's God. We pray, O oh Lord, please, do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Acknowledging God's sovereignty there is, is wonderful. And all indications are that this is the Lord's purpose. There's no other way of salvation. Nothing else that tried has worked. This must be God's plan and purpose. That Jonah be tossed into the sea. And they plead for mercy that his blood will not be charged against them. Now note the irony in all this. Jonah is the prophet of the Lord. But, but Jonah has never prayed. Not when the captain urged him, not, not on behalf of these heathen sailors, and not even for his own soul. But here are these heathen sailors. First, they're praying to their idol gods, but seeing how there was no help coming from those false idols, they turn ultimately to the one Lord God, and they pray to Him. They pray for mercy, and in faith, they pray yet not knowing what the result will be. And as soon as they tossed Jonah into the sea, verse 15, the sea ceased from its raging. The storm was over, and the sea became calm. But it's interesting, there's no, there's no rejoicing on, on the ship. There's no celebration. There's no cheering. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. You see, before they, they feared the storm, even with exceedingly great fear, but now, even more intensely, they have come to fear the Lord with an exceedingly great fear. And in that fear, there was a dramatic revelation. You see, Jonah's word, even though he was a, they saw that he was a hypocrite, his word about tossing him into the sea to calm it was true. 
Jonah's word about his God being the sovereign creator of the sea and the land was true as as the storm calmed immediately when Jonah's body hit the, the water. They see, it was revealed to them, that Jonah's God responded to their actions when they tossed Jonah into the sea, when all the time they were crying out to their idol gods, and there was nothing. They also realized that Jonah's God did not destroy them. The ship was no longer tossed, was no longer in danger. The Lord, Jonah's God, had answered their prayer. Again, when their own idol gods could not even hear them. Indeed, this is the same revelation when they have come to the conclusion that Jonah's God is then indeed the one true living God. And there is no other. And it's the same conclusion that the uh, revelation that the disciples come to when Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And in that great storm, and Jesus also sleeping in the boat, and He stands up and He says, A peace be still, and and immediately the sea comes to a great calm, and the wind stops. And they say, the disciples say, Who can this be? For He commands even the winds and water, and they obey Him. Who can it be? It can only be the true God. They saw that in Christ. These sailors see it in Jonah's God. And in response, these heathen sailors, Gentiles from other nations, they humbled themselves before the Lord God of Israel, and they worshipped Him with true and sincere worship. They offered sacrifices likely for their sin, and likely for a thank, as a thank offerings, and they also made vows, committing themselves to follow and to serve the Lord God. And these men were deserving of God's wrath and judgment because of their sin. Because of their sin of idolatry and and immorality. Yet they come to salvation as the Lord pursued them. He pursued them through this violent storm. He pursued them through the witness of His unwilling, rebellious prophet. And as for Jonah, well, he didn't know the outcome. At least not at this point. He likely knew that their lives were saved, but... But he didn't know that it would be God's plan to not just save their physical lives, but also to save their souls. right? Making these foreigners and strangers believers and worshipers in the one true living God. Which is interesting because it's the very thing that God had planned for Nineveh. And Jonah refused to carry it out. Well, up to this point, he refused. So what Jonah wanted to happen, or didn't want to happen, happened. Because it was God's plan and purpose. Beloved of God, the the glorious reality in all this is that God is still pursuing unbelieving sinners. He's pursuing strangers who don't know Him, who are dead in their sins and transgressions. He's pursuing them and He's seeking to make them alive in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And He will use storms and disasters. He will use trials and suffering. And yes, He will even use our own imperfect witness. Even our stubbornness and rebellion. God will use to accomplish His will. To redeem sinners. 
to himself. For he alone is God, holy and just, abounding with grace and mercy, all to the praise of his glorious name. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks to you for your word. We thank you for this uh, truth that you reveal to us and a great reminder of how you pursue undeserving sinners. And Lord, many of us count ourselves in that. Indeed, we all were sinners. But some, having not grown up in the church and in rebellion, and yet in time, you had grace and mercy. You pursued us, calling us to yourself, bringing us from darkness and death, bringing us into light and life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we just praise you and thank you for your good gift of salvation and what Christ has accomplished for us. And we pray, especially again, as we consider this, that we would never take the grace of God for granted. That we'd be always mindful of what Christ has done, the cost of what our salvation, and that each time we sin, we ought to be reminded of the pain and the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. Father, we just praise you and thank you for these things. And we pray that your spirit would be truly active in us and through us to bring glory and praise to your holy name. And that even that you would equip us as we go out into the world and we're, we're not perfect, we're often uh, not very good witnesses in living our lives and we can often be hypocritical and inconsistent. And we pray that you would use those rags anyway so that you receive the glory, honor, and praise when sinners are saved and redeemed through that witness. So we praise you and thank you, O God, and we pray that you would give us these opportunities, that we would be faithful, but that you would accomplish your will in these things, all to the glory and praise of your holy name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.